0: I find, especially for the younger generation, so women in their 20s, I feel like they have been hit the hardest with this kind of myth, as you said, that we can always get pregnant. They're being taught that condoms aren't even effective. They're being taught that really, if you're not on the pill, it's just a matter of time before you get pregnant. But what happens with that is that they lack the basic knowledge of how the cycle works. And as you said, it just causes a lot of anxiety because we're scared when we don't understand things. Like if you believe that you can get pregnant every day, but you really don't understand why or how, that just generates
1: fear from the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned on health is what happens when a midwife plus a yale-trained md shares about all things women's health from periods to menopause sex to reproductive health politics motherhood to mental health join me for taboo busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. You know, we talked back in episode of 160 of Natural MD Radio, we introduced you. I don't want to reintroduce you other than to say to listeners and viewers that Lisa to me is the go-to fertility awareness person. Her book, The Fifth Vital Sign is a must read for you, for your daughters, for your anyone um, with a womb and, and a menstrual cycle and ideally their partner's it's never too early. I started tracking my cycle when I was 15 years old. It's been one of the best lifelong bits of personal, I call it me search instead of research um, awareness I have. I talk about that in another episode also. Uh, So to me, when I started on the journey to my own fertility awareness, it was actually using a book called a cooperative method of natural birth control by Margaret Nofziger. It was kind of the first book on the market. And what I loved about it was a couple of things. One, I was already off in college. Some of you know my like little Doogie Hauser story before Doogie Hauser existed. And I was off in college. I wasn't sexually active yet, but a lot of my friends were already. I was one of the youngest people there. So my friends were 16, 17, 18. They were sexually active. And I then had my first boyfriend and thought, okay, this is going to happen sometime. So I went to the clinic at the college. And of course, immediately like, here's the pill. There was no conversation about my body, other options. There's no conversation about possible risks, which I don't have, but could have had to the pill. These were relatively undiscussed back in 1981 or 82 when this was. But to me, what was amazing, it was that all I needed was a $10 basal body thermometer because I really wanted to do it right and like fully know when I was ovulating because I was full full on gonna use this as my contraceptive method. It gave me complete body autonomy. The data on it, even then, was actually really strong if you do it diligently and correctly correctly. And so it was free, it was non-pharmaceutical, it kept me radically independent of pharma. And I, I have no judgment, you know. as I said earlier, when we were chit-chatting, I sometimes put patients on the pill now for a variety of reasons, but it was really a decision that I am so fortunate that I came onto so early in my life. And what I'd really love to do, Lisa, is use this time to bring your expertise forward, have a conversation, about how we can use this as a radical choice now to do everything we can in a setting where we know half of all pregnancies are unintended anyway. So what can we do to help lower that statistic for women who don't wanna be pregnant? Sometimes it's a happy you know, finding, but more often it's not. So what can we do to help people take back their body awareness as a radical choice in this time when termination has now become far more inaccessible than it even was for many people. And birth control may become inaccessible in more places. And also even in its greatest accessibility, it's not a choice that we all want. We don't all wanna put progestins and various forms of hormones in our bodies to prevent pregnancy. So thank you for being here. And I'd love to hear your (laughs) thoughts on how you see this as a radical choice. Well,
0: first of all, thank you for having me. And I really resonated with what you were saying. I think many women have the opposite experience where being off the pill or off some sort of hormonal contraceptive feels so terrifying, kind of feels like you're out of control because you could conceive. And I think for, for myself, what I resonated with when you were sharing your experience was that, you know, When I learned that there was this fertile window that's only six days, and I learned that I could identify it in a scientific way, as you had mentioned, you know, the basal body temperature is a big part of it, but the cervical fluid tracking, and it really didn't take me long to see that this was cyclical. And that's reassuring because it doesn't mean your cycle is going to be the same every time, but it means you can, what I say to my clients is you can learn your patterns and you can kind of start to see like, oh, wow, this is really a thing. You know, before I ovulate, I do see this mucus. After I ovulate, it does go away, you know, assuming the cycle is healthy and all of that good stuff. And the temperature does rise. So for me, it was the opposite because knowing that allowed me to feel like I was even in more control of my body uh, for a couple of reasons. So I had taken the pill as a teenager and I wasn't sexually active. I was taking it for period pain and also for really heavy periods, my first primary dysmenorrhea over here. So the first one was heavy and painful. And it kind of went from there. And I was very active in sports. And I was in ballet. And like, last thing you need is to bleed out the leotard, right? So I just, it's um,
1: you said that I just went to see a dance performance the other night, and all the women were wearing white kind of like boy briefs under their little silky kind of it was a contemporary ballet. And I was like, what do they do when they're bleeding cuz those are <laughs> tidy whities <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it's like the pressure is real you know and you kind of have to learn to use you know tampons whether you're ready or not kind of thing to 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 do that cuz this you know I, that's 20 years ago um but anyways so for me because i wasn't using it for birth control but i was still me i read the insert and so i was very aware that i would i was not taking it at the right time every day I would forget to take it and I would do what it said on the package at the time. It was like take two the next day or whatever. So I would kind of do what it said. So when I did become sexually active or similar to you when I was kind of planning ahead, I realized that I couldn't really deal with this. I would always be stressed. I would always be worried if I took it at 805. This is just my personality. Um, And if I forgot it. So I reasoned that I would always use condoms anyways. And sometimes I would take two pill packs like back to back. So, my just because, like, maybe I didn't want my pill period at that time. So, I guess it, what it boiled down to was my biggest fear was getting pregnant, not knowing I was pregnant, maybe because I took another pill pack or something, and then being surprised. That was literally the biggest fear. At least if I was pregnant, I wanted to know I was pregnant. So, for me, then I had that opposite experience. So, with charting, what it allowed me to do was understand when I was fertile. And when you know which days of the cycle, pregnancy is going to happen on, it really motivates you to use your chosen methods correctly. So for example, with fertility awareness charting, um, you know, I'm sure your audience is fairly well versed in this, but ultimately what it boils down to is that most of us are taught that we can get pregnant every day of the cycle, but there's really only this short window. And it's it's yes. a scientific thing.
1: So I want to hit full stop on this. This is one of the biggest myths that keep us one. Constantly anxious about having sex, using birth control every day of the month when it is this narrow fertile window and feeling really anxious all, a lot of the time. So let's talk about this myth. So the myth is you can get pregnant anytime, any day, when in reality we have a fertile window and signs and symptoms that we can track to alert us to when this fertile window
0: is. Well, yeah. And so it's, it's a huge mindset shift because most of the women that I know were taught from junior high that you could get pregnant every single day, including your period, and that there were no safe days. And ironically, when you learn biology, it's actually men that are fertile every single day from puberty forward. And for, for women, we have this cycle. And so if we go through the menstrual cycle briefly, the first day of your cycle is the first day of your period, the first day of your true flow. So if you have a couple of days of spotting, technically that would be part of the, the finishing up of the last cycle. And then in a healthy cycle, you would have anywhere from three to seven days of bleeding averages four or five. You would then go into what from in the fertility awareness world, we call dry days, which is just simply days that you're not observing cervical fluid. So cervical fluid can look like creamy white hand lotion It can look like clear, stretchy, kind of raw egg white type consistency that you can stretch between your fingers. And so for an average of, you know, four to five, maybe up to seven days before ovulation, you would see this fluid in a typical healthy cycle. And then that would lead to ovulation. And then afterwards, the fluid would dry up. And you would have about two weeks before your next period. So when you're tracking your fertile signs, you can start to understand that this is the time that you could conceive, the days that you see that cervical fluid. You know, one of the most commonly known rules would be the cross-check method where you're, you know, comparing your cervical fluid drying up to the temperature um, rising and staying high. And so there's rules around this. But I have women in my class that are like, but when you say that you can't get pregnant, like you mean withdrawal, right? (laughs) And (laughs) it means that it's, you know, after we could get into the science of it, but the most basic way to explain it is that there's a point of the cycle where the cervix, the opening to the uterus is actually open that coincides with the cervical fluid flowing. So there's, you know, our bodies are very intelligent in that the the uterus is an internal organ. It's not just open all the time. So you can't just get pregnant all the time. There's a small window. And once you have ovulated, The hormones shift, progesterone rises, and it actually closes that opening. And you can see that and the temperature rises and all those things. So from that perspective, even just knowing that is really hard. I find, especially for the younger generation, so women in their 20s, I feel like they have been hit the hardest with this kind of myth, as you said. That we can always get pregnant. They're being taught that condoms aren't even effective. They're being taught that really, if you're not on the pill, it's just a matter of time before you get pregnant. But what happens with that is that they lack the basic knowledge of how the cycle works. And as you said, it just causes a lot of anxiety because we're scared when we don't understand things. Like if you believe that you can get pregnant every day, but you really don't understand why or how that just generates fear. Right.
1: So let's talk about the life cycle of the egg and the life cycle of the sperm. So, sperm can survive in vaginal crypts. They can survive in their journey up to the fallopian tube in a hospitable environment where the cervical mucus is supportive of sperm. This is another thing that a lot of people don't know cervical mucus isn't just about keeping you lubricated, it actually has properties that help the sperm. Healthy sperm navigate to the fallopian tube actually may provide a barrier for unhealthy sperm. And when this, when that mucus is not fertile anymore, it actually is, it's not hospitable for sperm. And Lisa also mentioned a change in cervical mucus with progesterone. It actually creates a plug in the uterine opening that prevents anything from passing through. And that is really... Biologically protective, that if you were to have become pregnant, that would create kind of a, a hermetic seal to some extent in the uterus to prevent you from getting pregnant uh, secondarily or to have any organisms get up in there. But there is that window. So you ovulate, the ovum can survive 24 hours. So there can be a period where you ovulate if there are sperm still there or get introduced 24 hours after ovulation, also.
0: Well, so the way that I describe it, I use silly analogies, but I, I, you know, if you think of a nightclub, it's either the bouncers on duty or off duty. So essentially when we start to see the cervical fluid, it means the bouncers off duty and the sperm have free access. So in terms of timing, what I always tell my clients is that it's not about how much, but when you start to see that fluid, it means that you're in the fertile window. And another way I describe it is that we're often told that, okay, well, you know, ovulation is day 14 and that's the day that you're fertile. And I think that's, it obviously gets into our heads, but this, the cervical fluid can keep the sperm alive for up to five days. And so essentially if you have sex on Monday during that window, even though you haven't ovulated, and you have cervical fluid, the cervical fluid has all these properties, as you were mentioning. One is to draw the sperm into the cervical crypts where they can literally hang out in there for up to five days. And so you can have sex on Monday, you see some cervical fluid, and you can ovulate on Friday. And you can get pregnant on Friday because of the sex you had on Monday, because the sperm is basically hanging out in the hotel in your cervix Mm -hmm. that you may not have known that you had. Um, And so that is really helpful information. The cervical fluid extends the life of the sperm. The sperm get a lot of media attention, (laughs) you know, they're valiant swimming around or whatever, but really our body does a whole lot and they're not as hardy. As you would think, so the cervical fluid that we produce is a similar pH to the the seminal fluid that a man produces. So outside of that window, our vagina is actually quite acidic, and without that cervical fluid, they don't survive very long at all. So once you've ovulated, and what happens after ovulation is a, the follicle bursts, egg is released, and that physical change in the ovary causes the release of progesterone, and then progesterone has a completely different effect on our cervical fluid. So it inhibits the action of estrogen, causes that plug to form, as you mentioned. So what we see is we see dry days in a healthy cycle. And that means the bouncer's back on duty. Sperm can't literally get in. They look at it under a microscope. It's like a net. (laughs) So they can't swim through it. I could go into more detail but what it does for women who are trying to conceive. It's helpful to know that in addition to the transport of the sperm and all the good stuff we've been talking about, it also does screen the abnormal sperm. So they do all these tests the sperm that are not good morphology or motility can't swim through it they kind of get it's caught. really
1: fascinating and it is absolutely incredible and amazing it, it just never ceases to blow me away <laughs> and you can look online you can look at videos of of sperm morphology and changes in cervical and vaginal fluid and you can also look at videos of ones where there's like it, it's almost like the cervical fluid is creating these lanes like for swimmers. Yeah to get up. And if they don't fit in the lanes properly, like they just get kinked or stopped, they can't get through. It's so incredible. Also for those of you who are very visual as I personally am over on my Instagram at dr.avivaram, there you can scroll through carousels of what cervical mucus um, looks like at the cervix, what it looks like stretched between fingers at different times of the cycle. And it's really helpful. So Lisa, there's a couple of things that I'd like to, to, to segue to. One is we talked about the myth of that you can get pregnant anytime where actually we know there's a fertile window. What about the myth of fertility awareness, not being effective because we've all heard that probably at some point in our lives. Oh, that just doesn't work. That's not effective. But actually, that's not what the data shows. So can you talk about that a bit?
0: Yeah, I think the the most common thing that I still continue to hear from time to time is that the fertility awareness method is the rhythm method. And so uh, we could start there. You know, the rhythm method Great. is a method, <laughs> um, but it's a method based on calendar calculation. So essentially you would chart a few cycles and then calculate about when you think ovulation is and base your activity on this retrospective calculation. And so the reason that that doesn't, work is because we're not robots and although we've been taught that the cycle is 28 days and ovulation happens on day 14 any woman who tracks her menstrual cycle for a period of time will know that even if her cycles are fairly regular there is some fluctuation and so what i'm always telling my clients is that it's possible in any cycle to have an earlier or later ovulation so what's different about modern fertility awareness-based methods is that they're not based on retrospective calculations they're actually based on the real-time observations of what you're seeing So you're not guessing whether or not you're fertile based on what you saw last cycle. You're not assuming that because, you know, you ovulated on day 19 or something that you're always going to ovulate on day 19. You're actually learning your body signs and essentially learning to read those signs so that you can understand what's happening real time. And uh, there's also a number of different fertility awareness based methods. So when we say fertility awareness method, we often think that there's one, but there's actually a whole umbrella. There are... Methods that utilize cervical fluid observations only, no temperature. There are methods like the one I teach, which is the symptothermal method, meaning that we incorporate the basal body temperature and the cervical fluid, optional cervical position. And for my clients, I also incorporate a pre-ovulatory last infertile day calculation because that type of method has the highest efficacy. Uh, so there are different ways to do it. There's symptom hormonal methods that rely on, you know, hormone LH detectors, detectors that detect estrogen. And There's temperature only methods. And of course there's a whole world of devices and apps yeah. and things that are. And in know.
1: my practice, I use a combination of calendar awareness as a means of tracking symptoms and cervical mucus, which has a really high rate of efficacy if you're really tracking it. And then for people who are very much using it as I don't want to get pregnant birth control uh, or trying to get pregnant, I include basal body temperature. It's not a step everybody wants to take. And then for people who are, you know, yeah, this really works, but really what I want to do is have sex when I'm fertile or who are less likely to, for whatever reason, not have sex when they're fertile, then I do incorporate some other method, a uh, barrier method during that time. And I'm assuming you recommend something similar as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the one thing about fertility awareness is that the at the base level of what it is, it's telling you how to identify when you're fertile in your cycle and when you're not. So that's the first step. So the way I present it is, you know, this is the information, <laughs> this is what's going on in your body, but it's really up to the client to then identify what their goals are and what their desires are. So one of the ways, again with my silly analogies, is that when you don't have an IUD in, you know, when you're not on the pill, you've essentially pulled the goalie. You know, those uh, hormonal contraceptive methods or like the IUD, they operate by what I would say, uh making your body resistant to sperm. Like we could have a whole conversation about how the modes of action, but basically the modes of action of most contraceptives are a combination of keeping that plug in place so there's no access, thinning the uterine lining so the sperm can't, even if there's a fertilized egg, it can't implant. Um, And then some of the methods obviously, you know, prevent ovulation entirely. So when you are not using that method and when you are cycling naturally, you have pulled the goalie, your body is no longer resistant to sperm. (laughs) And fertility awareness is an entirely user-dependent method, meaning that it's about how well you understand not only your body, but the actual method that you're using. Yeah. So one of the challenges with an, an entirely user-dependent method, meaning it's on you to understand what you're seeing, but also to understand the method that you choose. And I have to stress that because, again, I, I the reason I said there's so many methods is because there are. And one of the reasons that some studies show such low efficacy stats is because they include everything. So if a woman is using a nap and she doesn't even know how to chart her cycles and she gets pregnant, they're going to include her.
1: I want to emphasize that even though when we talk about there being a lot of methods, it can sound really overwhelming and really complicated. It's not. It's really simply a matter of making time Every day to touch in with what's going on in your body, having a little time to check into a calendar, or if you use an app, your app. Um, if you're checking your temperature, you know, knowing to do that before you get moving in the morning. But it's it's pretty simple once you get the hang of it, and within a few months, you can make it second nature, just a part of your life. Excuse me for dropping an f bomb. I would say the biggest challenge is you know, and moms cover your kids' ears if you need to, but. The biggest challenge as one of my old friends back in the day used to say, and she had three kids is it works great, except you want to fuck when you're fertile. Mm -hmm. And right. That's part of how biology has engineered us to reproduce is to create that desire to be most pronounced at our fertile time. So yes. it's really easy for biology to override your intentions.
0: You're right, I don't think it's so complicated, but I do think that it's important for women to kind of start on the right foot. So for me, it's really important for women to be successful with the method. So the whole conversation around pulling the goalie and et cetera, is to point out that one of the myths that it doesn't work is because you know, in order for it to work, we do have to understand that we can't have unprotected sex for periods of time.
1: Let's let this image sink in, pulling the goalie. You have pulled the goalie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so what that means is we have to manage that fertile window. And so realistically, we did talk about the fertile window. So what the research tells us is that it's essentially six days. Um, And what that is, is the five days leading up to ovulation, because that's how long the sperm can survive plus the one day of ovulation because this, the the egg can survive for 12, but that's 12 to 24 that's what I was talking hours. about earlier exactly yes.
1: so that one um, post
0: ovulatory day but it doesn't mean that if you have let's say a 29 day cycle that there's only six days that you don't have unprotected sex because when we're putting this into practical action some women have more days of cervical fluid leading up to the ovulation um sometimes the cycle isn't so straightforward, like let's say you're stressed and then your ovulation is a little bit delayed. So there are times when that actual period of time when you can't have unprotected sex is nine days, 10 days.
1: And you don't know until you're in it.
0: Well, and especially in light of the topics of the day, um, we really want, in my opinion, I really want to set women up to use this method and to feel really confident about it. And so from someone who's a beginner who wants to start this, one of the best ways from my perspective isn't just to like read a book and like start having unprotected sex. So generally the recommendation is if you're not working with an instructor and you're choosing the most common method, which would be symptothermal, thermal, as you mentioned, the mucus and the, the temperature would be to take a minimum of three full cycles. So not three months, <laughs> hopefully your cycles are about a month, but three full cycles where you go through ovulation and your period, you know, three times. And you take that time to chart and that, that gives you so much information. You learn to identify ovulation. You learn what your mucus looks like, how many days you usually have it, what that temperature shift looks like, how to identify those things, how they match up. That time is really important. And during that learning period, training wheels on, you would have to have a conversation with your partner and decide what barrier method you're going to use so that you don't have any stress. You
1: can just learn stuff. And this is important um, to emphasize my that it needs to be a barrier method because you can't track what your cycle is going to be if you're still on the pill during that time.
0: Yeah. There's one example that comes to mind where if you're using a copper IUD and you're kind of thinking about getting it out or something like that, because you're still having a cycle, you know, um, but outside of that example, I can't really think of <laughs> like, you, you basically, it, it doesn't work if you don't have a cycle. And if you're on hormonal contraceptives, you're not really having a cycle. And so then once you have your three cycles down, then the, my recommendation would be to start with post-ovulatory phase only. And again, the reason is because the only part of your cycle where pregnancy is possible is before ovulation, because the egg thing and the mucus thing, <laughs> so we've got an egg there and the mucus that can keep the sperm alive up to five
1: days. Or at and ovulation. So-, so I just want to clarify before ovulation, at ovulation and one day after correct
0: yeah but because we can't with modern fertility awareness methods we're not saying we can predict ovulation we're actually relying on those signs in real time so when you see cervical fluid although you can't say exactly i'm going to ovulate this exact day we have to consider that potentially fertile because the sperm can survive in that for up to five days And to get back to the kind of question of like, does it work? Yes, it does work. So I'm not sh- I'm, I'm not sharing these things to say that we should be concerned. But like any skill, like when I learned to drive standard, I didn't just read a book. Like it took me a while to get used to the clutch. <laughs> and to figure out how not to stall. And it's a similar thing with charting because you have to kind of like, you see this cervical fluid, you've never really interacted with it before. You kind of have to figure it out. Like, is this cervical fluid? What about the semen? Like, does it all look the same? Like, there's a lot of little things kind of like the road signs when you're learning to drive that you just have to sort out. And it's not complicated. It's not hard, but you just need a little bit of time. And once you go through that process and women very quickly become very comfortable with it. And it the great thing about it as well, I think one thing that's really useful is once you have kind of figured out the cycle and you kind of know, okay, this is my fertile window and I'm gonna have to figure something out. um, There's a lot of positives here. One of the positives is that you have to have those conversations with your partner. I personally believe that regardless of what type of contraceptive you're using, hormonal birth control pill, whatever, I think those conversations should be had all the time because there's no method that's 100%. (laughs) One of the positives about this method is that you have to talk about it because you realize you're face-to-face with the very real possibility that if the condom breaks during the window, you're going to have to have a conversation of how you're going to handle it. Now, one of the positives about fertility awareness, again, kind of going back to the very beginning of our conversation, is that when you do understand your cycle and you understand which days are fertile, which days are not, it gives you a lot of power Because if you did have that unfortunate condom breaking scenario in that fertile window, you would know. And if your intention is not to get pregnant, you could use an emergency contraceptive method. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could talk a little bit about how those work, but essentially these are really important options to have because it's not that you have no options when you know exactly what's happening in your cycle and where you were
1: at, then you have that. And on the now flip let's side, let me just mention what they are. So, there's Plan B, and then there's the IUD, and then for women over seventy kilograms, there's some controversy over whether Plan B is actually effective enough. In which case, an IUD and um, Ella, which is a different form of emergency contraception, can be used. Unfortunately, the latter two do need physician help or care provider, nurse practitioner, CNM, someone who can prescribe or put the IUD in. But those are a few methods that you mm-hmm. can turn to.
0: So when I, you know, dug into the research about the plan B option and Ella option is that the primary mode of action of these emergency contraceptives is actually not as a abortifacient. So yeah. it doesn't it the primary way that it prevents pregnancy is not to discontinue an existing pregnancy, so that's helpful to know. Yes. And I think this is where fertility awareness can really come in handy. So essentially the primary mode of action is to delay ovulation. And what's interesting, you know, I've had a number of clients who've had that unfortunate experience of the condom breaking and having to sort that out. And you can see on the chart, delayed ovulation would mean that you don't ovulate, so you don't mm-hmm. see that temp shift. And so you can actually track this process. So from what the research says, you know, the main difference between, say, Plan B and Ella, which have a similar mode of action, is that with Plan B, it needs to be taken a few days before that. So the quick and dirty explanation: estrogen is rising. So when the estrogen gets to that level, it triggers your pituitary to release this luteinizing hormone. So one way to think of it is that your ovary is a balloon, (laughs) the LH is a pin. (laughs) And so once that LH is released, we have this process happening. The pin is going towards the balloon and it's gonna, you know, you're gonna ovulate. So what these hormones do essentially is if you're taking the plan B early enough, it'll prevent that LH surge. And so the difference between the two from what the research says anyways, is that Ella works closer to that surge. If you're ovulating on Saturday, but, you know, you take that Ella potentially on the Friday or the Thursday. Because uh, you had sex and the condom broke. That's right. It would more likely work closer to that ovulation. So from that perspective, based on the research, you know, I tend to kind of opt for the one that potentially is more effective, especially for clients in such a stressful situation. So, I mean, the main difference between Ella and Plan B is that Ella then works closer to that LH surge. So if, you know, I have a client in that situation, I attend based on the research to prefer Ella over Plan B, just because the closer you are to the actual date of ovulation, you know, Ella tends to, to work better. And the reason again is because uh, what the research shows is that Ella will delay ovulation in most cases, even up to the day of that LH surge, whereas plan B has to be taken a couple of days
1: before that. So, yeah. And then the like- IUD works by an even different mechanism, but can be used if you've ovulated and then had any incident. So there would
0: be a little bit more of a window in that case.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I think pulling it back to charting, one of the great things about understanding your cycle is that it does give you that power to, to know what's going on. Yeah, so the approach that. I take, I try to teach my clients how to use, if they're using barriers, how to use each barrier method perfectly. Mm-hmm. So like with condoms, you got to make sure it's right size. Got to make sure it's not expired. Got to put it on the right way. <laughs> do not use oil with condoms. Yeah. I'm sure there's people listening who didn't know that. Even if Yeah. So any kind of oils, coconut oil, uh, so
1: oils, <laughs> coconut oil lu- a lot of lubes that are, you know, organic natural based with nice scent. but if they're oil based, they can actually erode the condom material and reduce protection, both for from pregnancies that are unwanted and sexually transmitted disease infection or infection prevention also, which is another reason people use condoms.
0: And I think people can get away with it for a while because some of these condoms are pretty durable. So when I hear all these stories about condoms breaking, there's always a part of me that's wondering, What's going on here? I do encourage doubling on methods. So for example, because I, you know, I have clients all across the spectrum. I have clients who are comfortable with withdrawal, you know, in terms of their risk tolerance. And I have clients who like even condoms scare them. So if you understand how to use withdrawal, but you also use a diaphragm with a safe spermicide, or you choose to use a cervical cap along with that, again, safe spermicide, and you learn to use those methods correctly as well. So there are ways to then really enhance and I just want to put out there as well that I also have clients occasionally who are so maybe they did have an issue with condom breaking or something, but they're just their risk tolerance is not there. So there are couples who would choose not to have sex during the window. So of course, this is a personal choice. Um, it's not for everybody. There are other couples who would choose not to engage in penis and vagina activities where they're engaging in alternative activities where there's no contact in um, in that way.
1: So I think. Yeah, it I've worked with many people who make that choice, a variety yeah. of choices. And again, it, it is also, I think, important. You know, you mentioned the term risk aversion a couple of times, and that is an important thing to consider in how comfortable somebody is using this approach. I mean, even with an IUD or, or oral contraceptives, you can still get pregnant, um, but it's sort of like IUD feels a little one and done. So you can kind of put it out of your mind, the pill. I think there's a certain comfort around it for those people who are comfortable taking the pill. Like, okay, I took it. I'm protected. This does require more intention, attention, and diligence. So it may not be for everyone. I I do hope that everyone listening would be interested and willing to just pay more attention to their bodies and their cycles regardless. Let's just say for the woman who's listening, who's like, I really want to do this. What do you recommend for getting started? I only had access to a book back in 1981 or 2 and I had to figure it out on my own. Now there are so many ways to learn. So what do you think would be the best? Simplest, accessible, and you can say your own teaching too.
0: Well, I think that it's it's exactly what you said. We've so many different options now. It can be a little bit overwhelming, but I still think it is helpful to get a good book. So One of the most popular books, Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler. Of course, my book, The Fifth Vital Sign. So those are great places to start. Of course, I do have my podcast, the Fertility Friday podcast. Uh, And, you know, that's why I created it to be a resource where we can just have conversations about charting and fertility awareness. And I do a lot of episodes with real women who are in my program, literally learning at the time. So you get to hear the real, like how this really works, how it really feels, how do these women get over the fear of pregnancy? How do they have these conversations with their partners and things like that? So I think those are really great places to start. So I'm a little bit biased. Like when I first started learning, I did initially read in a book, but I did end up working and training with uh, trained educators. And there was a lot of questions that I had. I was able to still use the method, but they wouldn't have necessarily been answered. Mm -hmm. so um, all I do all day is answer all the questions about all the things so I know that we have questions especially when we're using a method like this and so I do recommend for someone who is serious about wanting to use this as birth control to consider taking at least one class or a few classes with an instructor that is certified in a specific method Uh, I'm not saying that it's not possible to do it on your own but on your own air quotes (laughs) is actually not on your own. Most of the women who are doing it quote on their own are part of massive Facebook groups where they have tons of women to ask all their questions.
1: <laughs> can you comfortably mention a few methods or classes that you feel listeners can reliably turn to? Well,
0: so I'm, you know, trained in the justice method. I feel comfortable recommending symptothermal thermal methods. They're the most popular, but part of the reason is because they have high efficacy, because they are comparing a minimum of two biomarkers. So um, there's a website, Fertility Awareness Collaborative, to teach the science. So if you, the, the acronym is FACTS, F-A-C-T-S. So if you type in FACTS Fertility in your search engine, um, that's a great organization. Marguerite, Dr. Marguerite Duane is the you know founder. She's phenomenal. <laughs> incredible. <Yes. laughs> the thing she has done for the Fertility Awareness Community, love her. But so what's great about her website is that uh, you know, she does present all the methods. So, you know, all the evidence-based methods. And so you can go on that website and take a look at all, you know, all these different methods and uh, really start to understand that, find an instructor. Um, so I'm a little bit biased towards the symptothermal thermal methods. Uh, and again, the statistic that is most commonly used to show efficacy, 99.4%, that comes from a study by uh, Petra Frank-Herman, who uh, whose research led to the development of the sense plan method, which does utilize the mucus temperature, and a lot of pre last and fertility cal- calculation. So up to 99.4% effective. But if you want that true efficacy, we don't have research on women who were self-taught. We have research on women who were taught a specific method by an instructor to achieve that level of efficacy. And of course, my primary heart is for women and I want them to be successful.
1: And I use the symptothermal method as well. That's what I teach and recommend in my practice for my patients. And my students and in hormone intelligence. Lisa, one area we didn't touch on, which I'd really love to very briefly address is what do you recommend in your teaching for women who have truly irregular, wildly irregular cycles? Let's say they have polycystic ovary syndrome and they may menstruate, ovulate once every three months.
0: So in terms of the recommendation, it's twofold. I think. Um, a big part of my message is that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So if you're having a period every three months, we need to look into that. You know, yeah, Many physicians will just say, go on the pill and come back when you want to get pregnant, but that doesn't resolve the underlying reason why you're not ovulating regularly. So I would say that that would be something to prioritize. In terms of using fertility awareness as birth control, it's possible. It's just, there's challenges with that. So in pre-COS, some of the classic things that you might see on the chart are obviously the long cycles, but that means a long follicular phase. So many days of cervical fluid or multiple patches of cervical fluid. What that means practically is that there's potentially a lot of days you have to consider fertile. So basically if you're, you know, you, you have to use barrier methods for long periods of time. Cause you just don't know. And so that might be acceptable. Yes, exactly. That might be acceptable for some women. It might not be for others. The point though, is that it still can be done. And so, you know, I think it can be helpful to incorporate those two aspects. That's what I try to do in my work where I do obviously always incorporate the charting so that you understand how to chart accurately, but we also want to work on the cycle. So I would certainly, you know, keep that in mind. There's challenges to that scenario for charting, but the challenge is more so the longer length of time that you have to consider yourself fertile. And so for a lot of women that may not be acceptable.
1: And for those of you who want to learn more about what Lisa and I are talking about, Lisa's book, The Fifth Vital Sign, my book, Hormone Intelligence, was which has a section on the sixth vital sign, same exact thing, just a different number, are, are really strong places that you can go to learn how to track your cycle, to learn what, like really all the details of what we're talking about. But then also, if you do have three month long cycles, Lisa's talking about getting to the why, she talks about those things in her book. And I talk about those with solutions in hormone intelligence. Quick question for you. You and I are both, I think, pretty diehard committed to pen and paper charts or computer charts, but actually charting. And, And we've talked about this in the past, but just while we're here today together, any changes in your thoughts on using apps instead or in conjunction?
0: Well, so, I mean, the best method is the one that works for your client. You know, the best method for all the listeners is the method that works for you. So I personally, like what I use for myself, um, I've tried apps. I've, you know, I started on paper. I was charting in the year 2000-ish. <laughs> so there were no apps. That wasn't a thing. So for me personally, After going to apps, I just like paper, but that's me. That's just my kind of um, bias. And what's interesting is that I assumed that I was the only one. Like I assumed that I'm just a dinosaur. I'm a weirdo. I like the charting on paper. But what I found in in my work is that at least 10 to 20% of my clients like paper. So, you know, I made a charting workbook and et cetera. So, but with that said, I don't think that charting on paper is necessarily best or not. I think what works best is what What works works for for clients. Mm -hmm. So in terms of apps, I mean, that's a whole conversation. I think for someone who wants to use this method as birth control, I would recommend an app that allows you to turn off the predictions so that you can actually use it as an input device and you have to learn what your cycle is telling you. You have to learn how to interpret fertile days versus not, as opposed to you getting confused because the app's telling you you're fertile in a day. Maybe you don't see cervical fluid. So I have guidelines around like make this, if you want to make this work for specific charting purposes, but I think whatever's clever, whatever you like.
1: Lisa, the work that you're bringing to the world is really phenomenal. I'm so grateful for your hopping on today and especially with a last minute Lisa, can we have this <laughs> conversation tomorrow because we're in a moment and women need to know this. <laughs> so thank you for that. Well, you thank have you so much for having me. Oh, a total pleasure. Um we will put in the show notes the link to your book, to your workbook, to how to find you. Any Anything else you want to share? Oh, I know. I'm going to ask you the one new question. Since we just are launching this podcast, I have one question that I want to ask every guest at the end, but I'm having to remember to do it, is if you would tell your younger self anything, let's say you were to meet your younger self at a cafe later today and she asked you for one bit of wisdom, what would you tell her?
0: Oh, that's so good. Like, I feel like if I was like 16, okay, I would say your periods don't have to be painful. There are things you could do. And I would tell her about those things.
1: For me, I think that would have made the
0: biggest difference because it was horrific for so long. (laughs) I could still tell that to my 20-year-old self because my 20-year-old self still had to deal with that.
1: That's beautiful, Lisa. Thank you for sharing that and saying that, reminding everyone that we don't have to suffer just because we're in a female body. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, I can't more strongly recommend Lisa's work, her podcast, her books, her courses. And again, thank you, Lisa, for joining us. See you next time, everybody. Me down gonna lift it up I hope you enjoyed this episode that it helped you to feel seen and heard and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space also make sure to follow me on instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog while you're there You can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.